0: Welcome back to the program. What are the forces that cause us to continue eating when we know we should stop? Why has the quality of food that most Americans eat deteriorated, even while more and more healthy choices are available? Why are our children experiencing an epidemic of obesity? And what role does the food industry play in this? And why, when controlling health care costs is supposed to be job one, we know that the epidemic of obesity in America accounts for no less than 10%, of all of our health care costs. Is the fault in our food or in ourselves? We're gonna talk about this today with a guest that has been with us before. It is my pleasure to have Dr. Robert Lustig back on the program. Robert Lustig has spent 16 years treating childhood obesity and studying the effects of sugar on the central nervous system and metabolism. He is the director of the UCSF Weight Assessment for Teen and Child Health Program. He's a member of the UCSF Institute for Health Policy Studies, and it is my pleasure to welcome him back to the program to talk about fat chance, beating the odds against sugar, processed food, obesity, and disease. Dr. Robert Lustig, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me,
0: Jeff. Appreciate it. Great to have you here. One of the things you talk about early on in the book is this misconception that has been with us for so long that calories are calories, that that all foods are the same, that all calories are the same. How did we get to that misconception? And then we can talk a little bit about how it has led us down this this terrible path
1: well, it started probably back in the 1950s is when calories sort of hit the uh, hit the uh, the fan as it were as a big issue um, some data that came out from several labs, uh, most notably the ones at Tufts, said that animals that burned energy slower gained weight faster and they exercised less and so the notion that calories out mattered in terms of weight gain was born. And so people said, well, if calories out mattered, then calories in must matter as much. And so this notion of caloric balance was born. Now, certainly the first law of thermodynamics is a law, and that is that if you know, energy can neither uh, be created nor destroyed, just shift it around. So it certainly made sense from a physics standpoint, that there's this thing called calorie balance. The problem is you're assuming that all the calories that come in are treated the same. Now, if we were all bomb calorimeters, that is, if we uh, exploded our food such that it created the same and equal number of calories no matter where the food came from, then that would absolutely be true. turns out that is not true. We are not bomb calorimeters. Where those calories come from has everything to do with how many calories ultimately get turned into energy for use and whether or not those calories can specifically cause disease based on their metabolic pathways. When you realize that, then a calorie is not a calorie. And if that's the case, then you have to start looking at which calories cause disease independent of their specific caloric value. That's what we've been doing. That's what a lot of investigators have been doing. And that is why I wrote the book. Because if once a calorie is not a calorie, then it really matters what those calories are. And it turns out there are some specific calories in our food supply that are particularly egregious in terms of causing disease. And unfortunately, we're awash in them. And worse yet, the government is
0: subsidized. The areas where they impact us have to do with our metabolism and our biochemistry, and that's where we see these impacts beyond just the caloric count.
1: Exactly. The caloric count is important in terms of weight gain. In other words, calories, for lack of a better word, could make you fat or can make you fat. Let's even go as far as saying will make you fat. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that those calories will make you sick. What we've learned is that specific foodstuffs are independent contributors to chronic metabolic disease, irrespective of their calories and irrespective of their role in obesity. And when, that, when you realize that, that these are independent risk factors, then you realize that specific calories can be toxic, not just making you fat. In other words, they make you sick not just make you fat. And that's what we've been doing. That's what a lot of investigators have been doing. And the biggest one, the one that's sort of the big kahuna on the block, the one that the book is about, is sugar. And that's the one that's been going up like crazy. That's the one that's gotten cheap because of subsidies. And that's the one that seems to be driving both diabetes, heart disease, and possibly cancer and dementia
0: One of the points you make is that sugar had a kind of resurgence after we decided that fat was something that we wanted to take out of foods.
1: Exactly. So all of the stars aligned to create the tsunami. Back in the late 1970s, the McGovern Commission said it was dietary fat, and it was based on data that had been obtained during the late 1960s and early 1970s that showed that dietary fat raised your LDL, And LDL correlated with heart disease. This was the, 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 you know, basic tenets of the low-fat craze. And all of those things were true, and they're still true. Dietary fat does raise your LDL, but it turns out it raises an LDL that is not related to heart disease. It raises the large buoyant fraction, not the small dense fraction. The large buoyant fraction is actually cardiovascularly neutral. It's the small dense fraction that causes the heart disease. And guess what drives that? Carbohydrate and particularly sugar. So we also learned that LDL levels correlate with heart disease, but it turns out that triglyceride levels correlate even better with heart disease. And what do you think raises your triglycerides? Sugar. Sugar. And we've also since learned that correlation is not causation. And when you look at the causation data, LDL, is basically irrelevant so but triglycerides are not and so sugar has now been placed front and center when the fat went out of the food the food tasted like cardboard the food industry knew that had to do something to make the food palatable and started dumping the sugar in thus the uh uh development of you know snack wells and Entenmann's fat-free cakes and you know all of the have today are all high sugar products. And if you look even at salad dressing, if you take the full fat version versus the fat free version, look at the sugar content, it's doubled in each one of the fat free products. Yogurt, another example, when you take the fat out of the yogurt, it tastes horrible. What do you do? So you dump in the sugar. So we have basically substituted fat for sugar and this has been seen now in several empiric epidemiologic studies that show that as the fat goes out, the sugar comes in. So the question, of course, is which was worse, the fat or the sugar? Answer, the sugar a thousand
0: times over. And given that the evidence is becoming stronger all the time in terms of the dangers of sugar, why is it still in everything? Why are we not addressing that in in much the same way we addressed fat at one point?
1: I'll give you one word, money. It's because of the money. There's a lot of money tied up in this. We have been able to, because of sugar, which acts not just as a palatability agent, but also as a preservative, we've been able to export our diet around the world. This is worth $56 billion to the American government in terms of export fees. So they're making money as well as the food industry making money, and no one wants to stop this gravy train. The problem is, as they make money, we get sick. And the question is, is it okay to peddle foodstuffs and or any product for that matter that's dangerous, That's that can hurt you? We certainly didn't think so with tobacco, uh, we certainly didn't think so with alcohol, why would we...
0: A little bit about the biochemical process that are at play here, and why that creates a kind of addiction that it really makes it so difficult to get off of. All right. Well,
1: sugar does three things that other foodstuffs don't, and that's you know th- these are the three reasons why uh, sugar is the most actionable and targetable of the various items in our food supply. And I'll make them very quick. I'll just do them very quickly. The first one is that sugar promotes development of liver fat. Because of the way fructose, the sweet part of sugar, the sweet molecule of sugar is metabolized, it's metabolized all in the liver. The liver has a fixed capacity to be able to metabolize it. So when you overwhelm the liver's capacity, the rest of it gets turned into liver fat. And a lot of that liver fat gets stuck in the liver and this accounts for the epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which then leads That raises insulin all over the body, and those that high insulin causes all sorts of problems, including uh, obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. second thing that sugar does is it goes to the brain, and in the brain, it activates the reward center. That's why we like it so much. Now, activating reward center is okay, and it's certainly a good thing, and it certainly is what gives us pleasure, but you know that most pleasurable things there is such a thing as getting too much of a good thing. What happens is the neurotransmitter in the brain called dopamine downregulates its own receptor. And so a little dopamine goes a long way until you have a lot of dopamine and then you downregulate those receptors. Then you need more and more to accomplish less and less. And finally, you have to consume a whole lot to get very little, and that's called tolerance. And sugar does that just the same way street drugs, cocaine, uh, heroin, morphine do. That's been shown many times over now. The question is whether or not it causes withdrawal, and that's still a question mark. We don't have the answer to that. So we're not... is particularly egregious. And the more you consume, the more those things will happen, the sicker you'll get and the quicker you'll die. And the question is, is that okay?
0: And to what extent are any of these three areas reversible and at what point in life?
1: Well, that's a really good question, Jeff, and we don't know the answers to those yet. What I can say is that the Browning reaction seems to not be particularly reversible. The uh, addiction is likely reversible reversible, but it would require abstinence, you know, cold turkey, the same way you would from street drugs. And the cravings can go on for months and possibly even years. And then the liver fat part, if if you stopped consuming sugar, the liver fat will go down, and that's good, unless scarring has already occurred, in which case then you have cirrhosis. So if you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, there is a distinct possibility that you may be too far gone to be able to benefit from uh, changing your diet. That's a real problem and something that investigators are working on.
0: Talk a little bit about the damage that we're doing in terms of the way we're treating some of this, where we treat the symptoms rather than the disease.
1: Well, that's the way it is for all of these. diseases. I mean, do we have a cure for hypertension? No. Do we have a cure for diabetes? No. Do we have a cure for heart disease? No. We have lots of treatments, and so big pharma... You know, they love this. They adore this because big bucks, big drugs, big, uh, uh, you know, uh, big uh, populations that need them, and there's no end. You know, the fact is that the pharmaceutical company has stopped researching antibiotics in part, for a good part of it, because you end the treatment because antibiotics are acute rather than chronic. You know, ten days of an antibiotic only make you so much money, but twenty to thirty to forty years of a chronic drug—boy, oh boy—are you going to rake it in? So they just think this is the—you know—this is this is their juggernaut. This is this is better than apple pie for them. So they are very much against us ever finding a treatment or prevention that actually works. So this is a this is a huge issue uh, within the uh, medical community at this point, Um, you know, what's the value and the role of prevention in something that is so ubiquitous as sugar?
0: Talk a little bit about responsibility for all of this, because certainly a lot of the blame can be put on on the sugar, on the subsidies, on the food industry, on Big Pharma, all the things we're talking about. Where does personal responsibility fit into that equation?
1: Right. You know, look, this is the... um, arguments that the food industry, you know, throws back at you. Well, you know, this you everyone gets a choice as to what they put in their mouth. Now, is that really true? Personal responsibility has some caveats that go along with it. The first one is knowledge. You have to know what you're doing. The five-year-old who shoots his brother is not guilty because he didn't know what was going to happen and he didn't know the gun was loaded. So, you have to have knowledge. Well, do we have the knowledge? Well, if you look at the side of the Nutrition Facts label, where it's next to sugar, there's a percent. There's a number with a percentage sign, and it's called daily value, percent daily value. That's a dietary reference intake. And there is a DRI for every single nutrient, cholesterol, for saturated fat, for protein, for sodium, for everything on that label except for one thing, sugar. And the reason is because they don't want you to how much is too much. Because if you knew how much was too much, breakfast cereal would disappear from the planet in a nanosecond. You know, but they don't want you to know. So you don't have the knowledge. Number two, on the label, they have to list ingredients by mass, right? So the first ingredient is the thing that there's the most of, etc. Well, there are 56 names for sugar, and I guarantee you, you don't know them. 56 different names, and they're all used. So you can have a different form of sugar for numbers 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. When you add them up, it's number one, but you don't know it, and you're not allowed to know it. So you don't have the knowledge. Number two, access. You have to have access in order to exercise personal responsibility. You actually have to have a choice. Well, in the food deserts, in lower socioeconomic status neighborhoods, where there's no real food, only processed and packaged foods, convenience foods, and that's what's being subsidized on, say, food stamps and WIC. How are you supposed to have access? If you don't have access, how can you exercise personal responsibility? Third caveat, you have to be able to afford it, and society has to be able to afford it. And right now, we cannot afford this issue. Number four, your behavior's can't hurt anyone else, right? Mm-hmm. that's, you know, the, and the fact that just like secondhand smoke, your behaviors can't hurt anyone else. Well, you know what? When you exercise your, quote, personal responsibility and you get sick, then your employer and your insurer and I have to pay for it. Your employer has to pay $2,750 per employee for obesity-related diseases, whether the uh, employee is obese or not. That is basically breaking the bank. So your behavior is affecting other people negatively. Negative impact on society. So there are four caveats to personal responsibility, and sugar breaks all four. Personal responsibility is a canard in this issue.
0: We've talked about obesity. In many cases, obesity is not necessarily a sign of excess sugar. We know a lot of people that exceed any normal allotment of sugar that that are not obese, but have other problems as well.
1: Absolutely. Um, There are two fat depots in your body. One's called big butt fat, subcutaneous fat, and there are a lot of things that contribute to subcutaneous fat, and sugar is actually probably not a big one for that. And it turns out big butt fat isn't particularly dangerous. In fact, in some ways, big butt fat is actually protective against certain diseases. Then there's the other one called big belly fat or visceral fat or liver fat. And that's the one that sugar specifically drives. And that's the one that makes you sick. And you can have that whether you're outwardly obese or not. Here's a different way to think about it. Eighty percent of the obese population is sick. No argument that means 20% of the obese population is metabolically healthy. They will die at a normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime, they're just fat. Conversely, up to 40% of the normal weight population have the exact same metabolic diseases as do the obese, they're just not outwardly obese. They have type 2 diabetes, they have hypertension, they have dyslipidemia, they have cardiovascular disease. They have cancer. They have dementia. They have the exact same diseases. They get them at a slightly lower rate than the obese. But when you do the math, it actually ends up being more people than the obese sick people. So we have more normal-weight sick people than we have obese sick people. And what is driving that sickness in the normal-weight people? Sugar. So looking at somebody and saying it's their fault, they're obese, and they're the problem, is actually um, quite fallacious.
0: What becomes the antidote to
1: this? (laughs) Well, there is no antidote. I wish there were an antidote. If there were an antidote, everyone would be on it, including me. Uh, There is no antidote. There's prevention. There's prevention. And that's really all there is. The problem is prevention means reduction in consumption. And the only way to reduce consumption, especially of any addictive substance, is to reduce availability. And how do you reduce availability of something that is as ubiquitous as sugar, where it's in every single product? Of the 600,000 food items in the American grocery store today, 80% of them are spiked with added sugar. So the food industry's purpose is not for yours. So the question is, how do you reduce availability when it is so ubiquitous? This is complicated. This is where the action needs to be in terms Policy. This, of course, is why taxation has been brought up. And taxation definitely reduces availability. Uh, reduction in um, access, particularly for children. You know, the fact is, if you look at what's being served in school cafeterias, it's an absolute joke. And the food industry is providing, uh, you know, the processed food industry is providing most of that, uh, those lunches, uh, you know, to the tune of about 80% of schools. This is a problem. Uh, There are other things that can be done. Uh, Changing the subsidies. The fact is, there's no economist on the planet who believes that food subsidies are a good idea because they distort the market. And that's what we're seeing. The market is distorted. That's why grains and specifically high-fructose corn syrup even came to be. So the question is, how do you deal with these things at a policy level? well, our government is not currently interested in engaging in this discussion. We have to make them be interested. And that's where the advocacy comes in.
0: Talk a little bit about it as it relates to health care costs, because that is the point at which policy meets reality in some
1: respects. Well, so the question is, which way should the government go? They're making money off the food, and they're losing money, on the chronic metabolic disease that they have to pay for. Obamacare promised us that we'd be able to balance the health care budget despite putting 32 million sick people onto the rolls. And they did this by saying that we would provide these people preventative services, that they would get to a doctor and that would keep them out of the emergency room and that would ultimately balance the budget. If you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. That is just not possible. And the reason it's not possible is because there are no preventative services for chronic metabolic disease. You're going to end up with just as many diabetics and just as many strips and just as much health care going out the door, just as many heart attacks that will find their way to the emergency room. There is no uh, preventative services. There's only... Reduction in availability. So the government has to get on board with the idea that the money is going out the door faster than it's going to come in, no matter what happens to Obamacare. And ultimately, they need to side with the American people versus the food industry. Right now, they're on the other side. And the only thing that's going to make them change is when votes are at stake. When there are more votes than dollars, that's when they're going to come around. Remember that politics leads from behind.
0: What about policies like we've seen in New York in the efforts to regulate by virtue of taxing things like soft drinks and, and other foods? Well,
1: I give all the credit to former Mayor Bloomberg for bringing this to the fore and pushing as hard as he did. Now I'll tell you, I went to law school specifically to understand this. I got a master's in law last year at UC Hastings specifically to understand what the role of government is in terms of taking a personal health issue to a public health crisis what are the legal doctrines and Bloomberg was well within his purview to be able to uh, advance that the judge that um, uh, dissed it and and struck it down Herman Tingling in the Superior Court of New York invoked a case known as Boreale v. Axelrod, a 1986 uh, smoking in public places case that was still on the books that said that you should be able to smoke in public places because it's your personal responsibility and your choice. Well, you know what? The New York State Legislature thought that was such a bad ruling that they ended up legislating it away and now you can't smoke in any public place in New York State or anywhere else in the country for that matter. It never took another challenge. That is just bad law. And if you look in Westlaw or LexisNexis, you know, which mm-hmm. uh, you know codes The different cases, that's got a red flag next to it because it's basically that law has been undone by legislation because it was a bad law. And for Tingling to have uh, invoked that law as the excuse for knocking the Bloomberg Big Gulp ban out was absolutely ridiculous. Um, The fact is, Hawaii has just reintroduced a similar law, and there are places around the country that are considering soda taxation including San Francisco. This will be on the ballot come November. Uh, In Mexico, they've already passed a soda tax, and for good reason.
0: Are we going to see, finally, a real bifurcation in the country in terms of places that that acknowledge this, that pass laws to deal with this, that take steps to deal with this, versus those that don't because of issues of individual freedom? Let's
1: hope not. Um, It certainly could end up that way. Because ultimately, this is going to be a bottom-up phenomenon. This is not going to be a top-down. This is not going to be something that the Supreme Court's going to decide for the entire country. This is going to be a state-by-state battle, the same way seatbelts were. You know, I liken this to seatbelts in my book. Um, You know, the fact is, the federal government passed a mandatory law that all cars built in America had to be equipped with seatbelts. But it didn't save lives until each state adopted a uh, mandate that people in those states had to wear those seatbelts before they'd get a ticket. And now, seatbelts do save lives because of the mandate that came from the bottom up, rather than from the top down. But we have 50 states that all have seatbelt laws. So, you know, there are ways to do it, and each state is the laboratory of democracy. They see other states follow suit. So we'll have to see how this plays out. This will be very interesting over the next ten years.
0: Dr. Robert Lustig. The book is Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity and Disease. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Let me let me also mention the Fat Chance Cookbook that's out now as well to help people be able to actually accomplish this in their own homes.
0: Thank you. Fat Chance, the Fat Chance Cookbook. Robert Lustig, we'll take a break. I'll be right back.